0: You're listening to episode 92 with Zoe Roller, Senior Program Manager at the U.S. Water Alliance. This episode is brought to you by Rogue Water Lab. Hi, this is Seth Siegel, author and senior fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Center for Water Policy. This is the podcast that is demonstrating the value of communication in the water sector. It's water in real life with my friends, the H2 duo, Stephanie Corso and Ariane Shipley.
1: So several months ago, the U.S. Water Alliance put out this report called Closing the Water Access Gap in the U.S. and it really stirred Ariane and I. Um, Some of the stuff you know, some of the stuff you hear about, but it's just a completely different thing to see it in black and white in this report and seeing the numbers of 2 million people in the United States that lack access to clean water and sanitation. It's really kind of just stirred us on a professional and personal level. And so we were really fortunate. Um Arianne wasn't able to make this uh this interview. She was there in spirit. <laughs> But uh, I got to speak with Zoe Roller, who's the senior program manager at US Waterlands, and she was the one that was really the project manager for, for the report. So she was able to give us this boots on the ground experience of putting it together, kind of the origin story of how the report came to be, and of course, you know, getting to hear about the role that communication storytelling is playing in not only helping these communities fight for the water and sanitation in their own communities, but how it's helping them to uh, really the power that community-based storytelling has to create action and to help with uh, social justice issues. So we also are fortunate that to get to speak with George McGraw with uh, Dig Deep, who was also involved in this in this project as well, and he'll be the episode following this one. So stay tuned for that one as well. Without further ado, let's get to the show. I am super pumped to be speaking with Zoe Roller today. She's Senior Program Manager at the U.S. Water Alliance, uh, specifically about this amazing report that she had a part of, but we're going to get to that later. So Zoe, thanks for taking time out to chat with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And we are missing the other half of the dynamic duo Ariane couldn't be with us today but you know we're going to we're going to go with it anyways and she'll be here in spirit to heckle me from home somewhere so <laughs> um so your background is in community planning and development which water obviously plays a pretty significant role in but despite that do you think that with your role in the water industry now do you think that water chose you or you chose water Water definitely chose me. I
0: didn't necessarily expect to be working in the water sector. I've always been really interested in cities and environmental justice, but the way I came to water was sort of roundabout. Um, I grew up in San Francisco, and that's how I got interested in cities. And then I moved to Brazil when I was 23 to learn more about urban planning and how cities work. And I wasn't working on water when I moved there initially. I was running an urban garden, and I worked on a violence prevention program. Hmm. But I kept noticing the ways that water affected people's lives. I was primarily working and living there in in informal settlements. And the neighborhood that I lived in had serious water and sanitation issues. My house had water outages every couple of days. And the worst one while I was there lasted about a month. Um, And houses did have toilets, but there wasn't wastewater treatment. So the waste from bathrooms would flow through an open sewer that went through the middle of the neighborhood. Mm. But oh, like I knew that water was important, but yeah. since I grew up in an area with pretty good infrastructure, I hadn't really thought about how critical it is to every part of your life. <laughs> so when I lived with those water outages, I realized you can't go to work if you can't wash your clothes and you can't take a shower. And if you can't wash your dishes, you can't cook and you have to figure out how to eat out every night.
1: Yeah.
0: So living there really helped me understand the economic and health impacts of access to water and failures of infrastructure. So that's sort of how I got interested in working in the water sector. And it's also living there got me interested in thinking about community led infrastructure and responses to these kinds of challenges, because Uh. the places where I, where I was living, the infrastructure that they did have was all built by the people living there without much assistance from the government, Mm -hmm. which was pretty amazing. Like, yeah, entire water systems and networks of pipes and pumps and tanks were all built by people
1: in their own neighborhood. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Were yeah. those were those issues that you experienced were those widespread problems where you at or were there more pockets of those kinds of issues with I mean lack of water and sanitation?
0: So they were, they were issues that occurred in informal settlements in Brazil. They're called favelas. Okay. And there are neighborhoods in the city that were built without much assistance from the government and often in places where people don't have land titles. So kind of similarly to the U.S., overall infrastructure was pretty good. And then there were places that had bigger infrastructure problems, and those were reflective of inequalities, much like here.
1: Hmm. So that's making me think of kind of comparison. And do you think that people in the people in Rio that didn't have the same issues, were they aware of these other communities that were having those issues or kind of here where it's something that most people don't even realize is happening in the United States?
0: I think people often aren't aware of the extent to which it's happening.
1: Yeah. And how it affects people. Yeah. Wow. That's a great segue to why we uh, were so excited to reach out to you to begin with is because uh, I read the U.S. Water Alliance's report on closing, titled Closing the Water Access Gap in the U.S. Uh, It's a fantastic report. Uh, Lucky enough to also speak with a partner on that program, George McGraw with Dig Deep. And um, so... Touting, touting this report, I think it's a must read for anyone in the industry. So, but you were actually the project manager for that report. So can you give us a little bit of that report's origin story, like how it came to be and kind of your role in that?
0: Yeah, it's something that I had been thinking about for a long time and hoping that it would come to fruition. Um, I worked on a report that the U.S. Water Alliance put out a couple of years ago that's called an equitable water future Mm. And that is a, another national report that looks at a wider range of water equity issues. So it covers things like um, water rate affordability and shutoffs, water contamination, climate change. And that was something that we did a, as an overview of all of the different ways that water management is tied to racial and economic equity. And through doing that, we learned more about some of these water access challenges, which I wasn't really aware of in the US before researching that report. So Hmm. we heard about places like um, the Navajo Nation where George and Dick deep work or the Colonias area along the Mexico border. Um, And those were places with conditions kind of similar to what I had seen in Rio. So that report, we only touched on those at a higher level because it included so many other issues. And we knew that it was something that would be worth looking more closely at. And so as our work on water equity was evolving at the U.S. Water Alliance and as it was becoming something that the sector in general was talking more about, mm-hmm. we wanted to take a closer look just at access. And we thought it was important to define it as something distinct because there is a lot of overlap with other issues like contamination and affordability, like Most of the communities that struggle with access to infrastructure also struggle with those. Yeah. But we wanted to frame it as its own thing because it is such an important challenge that differs a lot from communities where there are water systems in place, but they have um, things that aren't working well. Yeah. And because these communities are often being forgotten and left behind, we wanted to really put the spotlight on access.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you were really boots on the ground in many of these communities, maybe even all of them. I, I don't remember what you said in our last one, but I know many of them uh, conducting research and doing interviews with folks that were affected by this. So what, were, what kind of things really stood out to you about the, the people in the communities that were dealing with this, uh, with the impacts of having that lack of access to clean water? and sanitation.
0: Yeah. So I was the lead researcher in three of the communities. And then Nora Nelson at Dig Deep was our my co-researcher. So I went to four. And then I heard a, a lot about what was going on in the ground in all six. And one thing that stood out to me a lot in all of them was just the people are living with really difficult conditions, but they're not just suffering in silence and waiting for some kind of fix. Mm. Every place that I visited, we met people who were trying to figure out solutions and who were making sure that everyone else in their community was getting by. So in a lot of the places we visited, people were carrying water to their neighbors who were elderly or people with disabilities and weren't able to go out and get what they needed. Um, and we just saw a lot of examples of people making sure that their communities were doing okay. Yeah. So that was cool to see.
1: Do you feel like they feel like people are aware of the issue or do they almost have this sense of feeling kind of forgotten? Yeah, we heard that everywhere.
0: People feel really forgotten. They know that most of the country isn't aware that this is an issue and they're just afraid that it's always going to be that way. Mm. and it's partly the idea that I think most people in the US have the sense that our infrastructure is really good yeah and so people in communities where that that isn't the case they feel like outliers
1: and they feel that it reflects badly on their communities so nice well that's a great uh, segue to uh, my Next question. That's of course based on communication, because as communicators, Ariane and I, of course, think one of the major challenges to addressing this issue of accessibility in the U.S. is that no one, no one is really talking about it. Uh, we knew, we knew that the problem. I mean, we Ariane and I knew that this problem existed just from some of the people that we've talked to and work that we've done, but had no idea that two million. that it's 2 million, that it's that number that don't have access in America is alarming. (laughs) And that should be alarming to anyone who lives in this country, to your point, how most of us think that our infrastructure here is fine and that's not the case. So in your opinion, why do you think no one is talking about it, especially, especially people within our own industry?
0: I think there are a lot of different reasons for that. Um, it is just partly because we have the sense that the U.S. has made a lot of progress on infrastructure. And it is true yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, 100 years ago, the leading cause of death in the U.S. was waterborne illnesses, yeah. which is really hard to imagine now because we have made such big strides in our infrastructure. Um, but while you acknowledge that that is great, we also have to acknowledge that people were left out of that development mm-hmm. throughout our history. And that means that they're still struggling and living without basic services. And also like the U.S. is a part of initiatives like the Sustainable Development Goals where we're taking a leadership role and kind of guiding other countries towards working on water access. But it's still something that we need to focus on at home.
1: Yeah.
0: And I think it, it can be hard to acknowledge that it's a problem here and that it's getting worse in some places. So just breaking that myth that we have perfected our water infrastructure here is important.
1: Yeah, and that was, I think, something that really struck me in our conversation with George from Dig Deep is that that I think during, I don't know if it was during the process of doing the research for this report, but just that, to, to your point, the problem actually is getting worse instead of better, where in you know, the US, we're so focused on progress and moving forward that this seems to be an issue where as time goes on, actually more people are are losing access to clean water and sanitation in a lot of cases because of failing infrastructure and the inability to... Uh, it's it's an expensive endeavor to, 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 to do that. So <clears throat> that was kind of scary to hear. <laughs> yeah, it is. is
0: and something else that I think makes it hard to have this conversation and um, possibly one of the reasons that people aren't talking about it much is that talking about water access means talking about race and Mm. about structural racism. Mm -hmm. Because we found in the paper that race is the most defining factor in whether people have access to water and sanitation and that people of color are much more likely than white people to lack that access. So, if you're talking about how this happened and how it came to be, you have to look at some of the historical types of discrimination are just patterns that have gotten us to this point today, which can yeah. be talked
1: about. Yeah. We definitely talked about that too in this in this idea of, you know, how do we how do we bring this up and and name this problem without people getting defensive or feeling like we're the ones that cause this, where in many cases, um, these things happen from laws put in place by people that are dead now. So let's just not focus on, (laughs) let's not focus on necessarily the why, but let's just understand, let's understand it. And let's make sure that we don't repeat the same mistakes and that we move forward and help the people who are impacted by it now. So, but I think definitely naming the problem and not getting too wrapped up in um, not not naming it and not talking about it because we're afraid of what other people will think or feel because it's not really about that. It's helping the people now, so.
0: Yeah, and things like that, I think, have to be acknowledged in order to move forward Mm -hmm. in a transparent way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But I think we have the basis to have really great communication around this issue because we know that as a country, we value people having access to water and to health. Um, So it's something that everyone is invested on making a reality.
1: And one way that we're passionate about uh, getting that word out is through storytelling. And so in another piece of our conversation with George around this report was he talked about kind of the power of community-based storytelling and empowering people with the tools that they can use to to tell their own story and share their own story and get the word out. So what's your take on giving the people those tools, which in some cases may be just educating them on the reality of what's going on and the ability to tell their own story and kind of what's their role in be able in being able to create those solutions themselves since you said that you've seen that happening.
0: Yeah, totally. Well, one thing that we found, and this is another reason that communication can be hard, is that there's a lot of stigma around these issues and it can Mm. be hard for people to admit that they live without a working toilet or without running water. Um, And we also heard in pretty much every community we visited that people living in towns like this or areas that have this challenge feel really alone Mm. and they might imagine that they're the only place in the country dealing with it. So once you talk to people about how this is actually widespread and there are little pockets of places of water access challenges all around the country and in every state, that shows them that they're not just an isolated outlier, but they're part of this larger group working on this issue. Um, So I think having more community-led storytelling is a way of overcoming the stigma and breaking that silence and showing people that they have a lot of collective power. we also heard in some of these communities, they, they may be places that have other types of challenges other than water. And people are concerned about their region being portrayed in the media in a kind of cliched way. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain stereotypes like Appalachia is often portrayed as abandoned coal towns. Puerto Rico, there's just focus on the hurricane. Mm-hmm. After of that, And I think people want to show that they're they're full communities with a lot of stuff going on, and they're not just waiting for outside help or for some charity to help them, but that they are taking initiative and taking power. So, I think giving people the tools to tell those stories and to show the amazing projects that are happening in their communities is really important.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the things that uh, I really liked about the report was that it was it was really easy to read. It was digestible. You know, you're talking about um, it didn't get into a lot of the technicalities of, of issues, but it was just, it was easy to digest. And mm-hmm. um, it was also really visually engaging to look at as well. There were wonderful photos of many people from the communities that are affected. Uh, I love infographics when you're talking about numbers and those are really powerful um, in, in that regard. But did you guys capture this story in any other way besides photography? Was there any video that was taken while you guys were doing this to, uh, I don't know, maybe hear some of these people's stories, or maybe that's something that can come out of this too, is hearing some of those stories from the people that were impacted in some of the communities that you visited.
0: It's definitely something that we want to incorporate into the next phase of the project. Mm. Um, we mostly took photos in this part, but people have really interesting stories to share. Yeah. we hope to work on that next.
1: I yeah, I'm uh let's see if we can get Radica to get a documentary about it made or something. Yeah, that would be
0: awesome.
1: <laughs> I would love to I would love to see that happen. That would be that would be great. Um, but I love that it ended with it was broken up into the three sections. And I love that the last section was all tied to action and that it truly felt like an action plan. And there were four ways to take action, which when you're thinking about problems like these, obviously things like funding and innovation are involved. But I also loved that there was this idea of building community power through relationships and also fostering creative collaborations across different partners. So these are two issues that are near and dear to Arianna and I's hearts. Can you talk to us about these two components of the action plan specifically and the importance of bringing people together around this issue to get things done?
0: Yeah, I'm glad you highlighted those. I love those parts of the report. And like you said, the having support and resources and having the government and the private sector and philanthropy on board is all really critical. Yeah. But these communities know the challenges that they're facing better than anyone else. And they're probably the most qualified people to solve them. So being out in the field, seeing all these solutions that people are working on, I think the answers are all out there. We just need to connect people to better support. Um And supporting the local leadership and the people that are running these projects is probably one of the best ways to do that. Um, So we saw really promising solutions in getting people from the communities that are affected into positions of more power and Mm -hmm. decision-making. Because there's often kind of a gap with participation in processes like water planning where people feel... Kind of neglected by those and in some cases they've been disenfranchised in participating in government processes in the past so trying to make that connection and help build more political power is a mm-hmm. way to do that and one of the projects that we found that i thought was the coolest is the community water center action fund yeah. um,
1: is that the one in california
0: they're, yeah they're an organization based in the central valley in california oh, and yeah Their action fund tries to create pathways to leadership for people from places impacted by lack of access to water. So they mentor people from those communities who want to run for local water boards and city councils. And um, they've had some success with that and they've gotten some people elected. So then they're directly involved in decision-making on water policy in their community. So that's a great example
1: of um, really bringing communities into decision-making. I'm so excited that you mentioned that one because that was, George actually mentioned that when we talked to him too. So now I'm like, I have to meet these community water center people because what an amazing idea. I love that. I love getting people. We're such big
0: fans of them. Heck yeah. Um, I can see why. And then another thing that we thought was really important is just trying to build more connections between the communities that are affected. Because like I said, a lot of them think that they're the only ones. Mm -hmm. And realizing how many other people are facing the same kinds of stuff and trying to build some solidarity and collaboration between them is great. So one of the other examples that we highlighted in the paper is the World Indigenous People's Water Summit, Mm. um, which is actually global. It's not just in North America, but they bring together um, indigenous groups from all over the world that are concerned about water issues or working on water in some way to build connections between them and to build more of a community of practice around these issues.
1: Nice. So that's cool. Yeah, I really like that idea of this project being able to show these communities that they're not isolated and alone, that there's others who are going, are going through this and um, hopefully in some way helping to create movement around solutions faster. But if anything, just a sense of camaraderie of you're not in this alone and we can amplify our voices and, and that kind of rallying people together. So I like that it's done that as well. Um, Yeah.
0: And then um, we also talked some in the paper about trying to think about multi-benefit solutions. Because Mm. what we found in all these places we visited is that they have challenges with water access, but that's often just one of many things that the community or the region is struggling with. There are places that may not have safe housing or paved roads or electricity that works hospitals, schools, they're often food deserts where there's no place to buy fresh, healthy food. Yeah, The water has to be understood as one of many different challenges, but also something that you can address many of them at the same time. Yeah. Um, so we looked at projects that are looking at water's connections to other types of infrastructure and other things that communities might be lacking and trying to find
1: ways to address all of them at once. It's amazing the, the intersectionality, I guess, is the right word, uh, of all these different issues and how, of course, selfishly, I want to tie them all back to water in some form or fashion, but I mean, it's just, uh, it's just amazing how I feel like water is the Kevin Bacon of, of issues. <laughs> you can trace them all back to that. So, it is. uh, <laughs> uh So great report, pointed that out. What's your biggest call to action for people to do, especially people within the water industry, because that is our audience listening right now. So yes, read the report, but then what? What do you want people to do?
0: I want people to understand that this is a really urgent crisis. Mm. It's affecting people right now all around the country. It's threatening people's health. It's making it hard for them to go to school or to go to work. It's preventing economic development in their communities. So I just want people to keep this on their radars. Think of it as a really important issue and don't let it be forgotten. And at the same time, I want people to know that it is solvable, that we're a country with really significant resources and expertise and the ability to get this done and to make sure that everyone in our country can turn on their tap and have water and flush their toilet, but that we need to make sure that we're focusing resources on this.
1: Yeah, for sure. We got this, water folk. Come on, we can do this. Yeah. We can solve this problem. The solutions are there. Um, well, this is awesome. Uh, again, I hope you. Uh, I hope everyone listening downloads this report and checks it out. It was eye-opening for me. Visually fun to read, kind of depressing. I needed a little whiskey while I was reading it, but um, <laughs> but definitely a report that needed to be done. But before I let you go, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you some of our our lightning round. We call it. We ask this. We ask these three questions of all our guests, and we always uh, we always have so much fun listening to all the different answers that we get. But is there a favorite book right now that you can recommend to our listeners? Uh, I really like science fiction, and mm, okay. I've been reading
0: some science fiction that's kind of connected to water and to climate. So, um, I read a book called The Water Knife, which is about a future with shortages of water. It's really scary. You might also <laughs> need some whiskey to do that <laughs> one. But another climate water sci fi classic is Parable of the Sower. Mm. It's one of my favorite books, and it feels very
1: real and believable. And mm. so- I'm kind of afraid to read any science fiction around water because I'm just <laughs> like, oh God, is this actually gonna happen? But yeah, okay. It's Check this out. How
0: <laughs> real it sounds though. It was written a couple decades ago and it could be
1: right now. Oh boy. <sighs> um, what's something you do every day that drives your productivity? I like to I
0: bike everywhere. I live nice. in LA and I like biking around the city and trying to see new neighborhoods. And
1: then that helps me focus when I get back to work. Wow, you must be in super amazing shape because LA is very hilly. <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, we went there recently to to plug another piece of work that uh, highlights solutions that are out there that can help solve some of the challenges we're facing. It was Brave Blue World, which was a documentary that was uh, done through partnership with Water Environment Federation and Blue Tech Research. And we were just out in LA for that. Pre- Who knew that one day we would be at a Hollywood premiere for a, for a movie all about water, but it was amazing. And I, and I do like that it was so solutions-based, but it was in LA and we went for a walk to go get lunch and went up. a hill that I feel like was just completely vertical. And so Mm -hmm. I can't imagine uh, being on a bike and doing that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that happens sometimes. You turn a corner and then it's like a sheer drop off.
1: Yeah. You're like, how did this happen? I don't even remember (laughs) going down a hill that dramatic. So yeah, kudos to you on that. But So last question, one of my favorites to ask folks is, Arianne and I did public education and outreach for municipal utilities for 10 years before we went rogue and started Rogue Water. And, um, you know, oftentimes we're all talking about behavior change. And we talk, would talk to people who would say, well, what difference does it make? If I make a change, I'm just one person. It's not going to change anything. Obviously, she and I wholeheartedly disagreed with that because we believe that change can be contagious and you never know what you might inspire in, in someone else. So what's the one call to action that you're most passionate about that you believe could ultimately change the world?
0: Well, I think... The the work that we do can often be really heavy and really depressing because we're talking about serious things and we're trying to create a world that is more just and is more sustainable and more resilient. And that can all feel dark sometimes. But I think also imagining a world that is more fun and more pleasurable where we can all be healthier and happier and enjoy ourselves more. Like that's what we're working for too. So yeah. I try to keep that in mind that a just world will also be a fun world.
1: Nice. So just kind of remember the end goal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. I can, I can dig that. Well, I thank you so much for taking the time out to chat again. Uh, super excited about uh, hearing more of kind of the behind the scenes VH1 style, not behind the music, but behind the mm-hmm. water report. Uh, check it out. Is there an easy link that people can go to to download it besides just going to U.S. Water Alliance's website?
0: Yes, we have a site for the report. It is closethewatergap.org.
1: Nice, closethewatergap.org. Check it out, download it, talk about it, share it, tell other people about it. It's a great, uh, it's a great report. So thanks for your work on that and, uh, for helping bringing that information to light and appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you for having me. It's been great. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Never miss out on future episodes by signing up for the lab notes, formerly the water nerd newsletter. This is your one-stop shop for the podcast catalyst and all things Watercom's revolution.
0: Sign up at roguewaterlab.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram
1: at roguewaterlab. Plus, still keep up with the H2Duo shenanigans at the underscore H2Duo. Don't forget to share with your friends and fellow water nerds so we can continue to grow the tribe. Remember, it doesn't matter if you're a water communicator, educator, or an engineer or operator. You are a communicator. As public health stewards, we have a responsibility to the people we serve to have our comms game on point, to build the trust and support necessary to create a resilient water future. Investing in comms is an investment in yourself and your organization. Why? Because just like what one of our favorite quotes says, those who tell the stories rule the world.